Welcome to the Turd Nerds. We are the functional gastroenterology podcast discussing all things poop. Before we take the plunge into today's episode, let us tell you a bit about ourselves. I'm Dr. Rebecca Sand, a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist, and I specialize in all things gastroenterology, hormones, and fertility. I'm Dr. Ami Kapadia, and I'm a medical doctor trained in family medicine and functional medicine with a special interest in gastrointestinal health, food and environmental allergies, and autoimmune disease. And I'm Dr. Alana Gurvich, a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist who is board certified in naturopathic gastroenterology. I specialize in inflammatory bowel disease, IBS, and other functional digestive disorders. Let's jump into today's episode. The following discussion is for educational purposes only and not intended to diagnose or treat any diseases or conditions. Please consult your doctor before incorporating any of this information into your care. The information presented on this podcast is not medical advice. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Turdners, a functional gastroenterology podcast. Today, I'm super excited that we are going to be talking about celiac disease because this is something that I think I am missing in my practice. And I feel like, you know, the nuance of it, I just get really confused about. And so I kind of just want to like let Dr. San and Dr. Kapadia just go at it and kind of explain to me what I'm missing and I'll be an observer on the bench. Sounds good. Yay. So I'll start with some basics and then Dr. San's going to go into some of the more... Um, cutting edge research on on some of these topics. So, um, you know, celiac disease is something, of course, we all learned about in medical school, but non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which we're also going to talk about, and it's many manifestations, is something that I learned about from a lecture about 15 years ago with Tom O'Brien, um, who's one of the health educators and practitioners who's taught quite a bit about this topic. And so I remember he put up a picture of an iceberg and how he talked about celiac disease just being kind of the tip of the iceberg and that there's all these other health conditions and manifestations related to gluten exposure that fall out of the realm of just celiac disease. So there's a much broader scope of ways that gluten can affect someone. So we're going to talk a bit more about that. And so, you know, first, we all know celiac disease is an autoimmune disease. It affects the small intestine and it causes villous atrophy and damage, which down the road will cause nutrient malabsorption and systemic side effects from not being able to absorb nutrients well. Um, And, you know, one of the ways he talked about it in that initial lecture was sort of like this Berber carpet where things are just the villi and the small intestine are not working properly. They're blunted. And um, so we're just not getting the same nutrient absorption or digestion that we would otherwise get. So I remember when we're talking about basic physiology of villi versus microvilli, there's like the little finger projections and those, which are the villi, and the finger projections have the microvilli, which are like finger projections off the finger projections. Yeah. Is all of it getting blunted? The microvilli and the villi? Is it just a microvilli disease? I believe it's all of the above. Dr. Sand, do you have thoughts? I think it's all of the above, too. I think when you were talking about the carpet, that's a great analogy. I think we're supposed to be, like, shag carpeting in there. Right. Because the increased <laughs> surface area is what allows our microbiome and our cells to absorb those nutrients and process them. So if the carpet's getting shaved off because of an autoimmune destructive process, right. we lose that surface area. We can't absorb our nutrients. Um, and I think another really important thing that you were getting at, Dr. Kapadia, is... Um, Celiac, unlike all the other ones, as far as I know, is autoimmune. It's not a food allergy. This isn't getting better for folks. Like, this is always going to be what their body does. Um, And I think people confuse that, that, you know, if you just do a little bit of gluten and sort of become tolerant, not okay. (laughs) Not a good idea. Yeah. 
Um, Dr. Gurvich, you mentioned an analogy that you use with your patients. So I have this patient, uh, I have this patient and what happened with her, she was kind of having GI symptoms and so she went in and she got scoped and they diagnosed her with celiac disease. And she was like, God, she really hated this diagnosis. She was like, you know, gluten and wheat is just part of my culture. She was Latin and she just really did not want to deal with it. And I gave her the analogy of like, you guys remember Roger Rabbit? Vaguely. Vaguely. Okay. Roger, I just rewatched it with the kids. And oh, I'm really, okay. really into it. Have to bring it um, back. But there was this whole thing where, like, it was like humans and tunes or cartoons, right? And there was no way to kill the cartoons. You can, like, hit them over the head and they just get stars above their head, but they don't get hurt. Yeah. The only way you could kill the cartoons is put this in the, put them in this acid. And the acid would literally <laughs> melt them away. And so I was giving her this analogy about Roger Rabbit, and this is what gluten does to your GI, to your right. small bowel. Right. And she, like, she was, like, fighting it fighting it but she was a city planner and her job was to, like make highways and that movie was actually all about like the highway industry yeah and she was like oh that's like my mantra i get it oh Aww. this is the bad guy gluten is the bad guy so she understood in roger Rabbit. that was like that's what clicked for her right yeah and it, it is it's one of the most tricky things like at this point before i test someone i'll ask them if they want to know if they have this diagnosis, because yes, we feel like it's important to know it has long-term manifestations, but some people don't want to even consider having that lifestyle. And so I, I typically now try to ask because it's ultimately the patient's decision if they want to potentially make this lifestyle change for the betterment of their health. I feel like I have taken exactly the opposite. Okay. Stance. <laughs> like exactly the opposite stance. <laughs> Excuse me. I feel like in my training, I can't tell you how many ethics conver- ethics uh, CEs I've had to yeah. sit through, in particular about celiac disease, where it is unethical for us to not tell them. Correct. But to, to even bring up testing, I mean, if we test them, we're going to have an answer. Yes. If we go through the all the tests we'll talk about. So I feel like they need to be open to having those results if we're going to do the testing. So it's an interesting... But I think also if they have celiac and we're not, and we should be screening and we're not catching it, we're putting them for higher risk of cancers. Right, right. Nutrient deficiencies, yeah. things that are like kind of our job to be managing for people that are coming in right. with symptoms. Right. We can't miss a diagnosis if it's It's always a risk-benefit discussion though. Yeah. So I mean, I, I've had patients get upset change. with the positive diagnosis Mm -hmm. and we're not amenable to the lifestyle changes and they had, they would have preferred to never have been tested. So it's sort of like, you know, with anything that we're screening someone for, it's ultimately their decision if they want to be screened for it. But I agree. Like I, I would say I screen 99% of my patients, except for the few who say, you know, I I had a patient who was, she was, she's vegan already. She's got other food allergies. She didn't want to know. She's like, I can't, I'm not interested so I said, that's ultimately yeah. up to you. You still have all these systemic symptoms, but... And, <laughs> you know, here's your informed consent right. about what it looks like to potentially have celiac yeah. and not be treating it. Yeah. Right. I mean, you, obviously, we no longer live in the 1950s when doctor knows best. Right. Yeah. The best that we can do is educate our patients. Yes. Totally. Yeah. If it was up to me, we would screen... I screen... I would... I used to screen 100% of my patients because they all had yeah. the symptoms we'll talk about. Um, and so we we'll, we do our best with that. Yeah. Okay. So next, I wanted to just talk a little bit about, so th- I mean, part of the reason we, we would screen is because it's so common. Right. So this is affecting 1% of the population worldwide. And the, the 
sort of frustrating part is that 97% of those patients don't know that they have this. So, wait, and so wait, say can't that do it. one more time. That's right. a big number. So 97% of the people who have celiac disease don't know that they have it. And 1% of the population knows that they have it. No, 1% no. has it. Of that 1%, 97% don't know that they have it. So basically, we're missing diagnoses. Yes. It's the, it's the most common autoimmune condition um, that we know of, at least in the Western world, if not globally. Um, and we are missing the vast majority of people who have it. And there are a lot of nuances that we'll get into later about why we're missing that. Right. But something that sort of blew my mind was that celiac disease is two times as common as Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, and cystic fibrosis combined. That's crazy. Which means, you know, we think of how many patients we have with those other conditions versus how many patients we have with celiac disease. We're missing a lot. Right. I mean, I feel like that statistic is like a train running through my head. Right. It because be. I see a lot of Crohn's. Right. Colitis, so then you're you know seeing I mean? a lot of celiac and, disease. Too. And I'm missing it. <laughs> yes. And there's a lot it. of crossover. Having IBD predisposes you. I mean, it, it increases your risk to having celiac disease and vice versa after diagnosis. So you want to think about all of these autoimmune conditions together in Absolutely. our particular in our population. And more. And, you know, we can kind of talk about comorbidities and other diseases to have on our radar. But things like um, EPI, exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, could be related. higher correlation, things mm -hmm. like endometriosis, that's, you know, quasi autoimmune. And then, you know, obviously all the autoimmune conditions, they right. like each other. They run together. Yes. We need to be screening pretty religiously in those folks. Right. Whoa. So, I think that's just settling in for me. <laughs> Yeah. So besides celiac, the other entity I wanted to mention is non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And so this is a condition where you may have, you have some positive antibodies to gluten gliadin, and we'll talk about testing and how that works, but you do not have the traditional positive biopsy results um, when, when you get an endoscopy. So this is thought to affect actually up to 6% of the population. So again, this is one of the reasons in all of my new patients, I talk to them about initial screening for celiac. If that's negative, I really try to talk to them about the advanced screening for non-celiac gluten sensitivity that we'll talk about so we can get more of a yes, no answer, as opposed to a lot of the other food sensitivity type issues that we'll talk about in a separate episode. I feel like gluten is something where we want more of a yes or no, because there are a lot of patients who will say, well, I avoid it most of the time. But what they don't know is like one ingestion, if they are sensitive and making antibodies can create like three weeks of inflammation, you know? Whoa. So, yeah. So, so it's important to know. Um, so next, you know, when we think about who to screen children, adults, it's interesting that um, children more often will manifest sort of the typical celiac disease symptoms like digestive issues, diarrhea, constipation, pale, foul-smelling foul stools, iron deficiency, weight loss, a lot of the things we think about. Um, failure to thrive. Failure, failure to, to thrive. thrive. Yeah, poor weight gain, irritability, inability to concentrate. I've Attention issues, totally. yep. cognitive yeah. symptoms. Here's why that is, as, as somebody here who has children, yeah. the reason why that list is so unfair is because there are periods of time when right. you're a child will always be all of those. Yeah. Yes. And it does not mean they have celiac or another disease. Yep. It just means they're a child. Right. Yep. So it's, that can make it challenging. So, But if they had a lot of those other symptoms and or a failure to thrive, Absolutely. that's when we'd want to look into this. Whereas adults, while they can have digestive symptoms, they also often have more of the extra intestinal symptoms and the nervous system is the most commonly affected system out, out outside of the gut. So there's been um, case studies and reports on uh, gluten-induced ataxia, for example. There's, Define ataxia. So they have abnormal gait and movement disorders. Whoa. Um, there can be also correlations with migraine and there's there was 
been case report studies of removing gluten and one or two potentially other foods and resolution of migraines and small case controlled studies. So they might have some of those other symptoms. I bet that's across the board with all of the gluten related conditions as well, not just celiac. Yeah. Um, But we've probably all seen that in gluten sensitive folks that if they don't have celiac, but we take out gluten, heaps of things get better. Right. Um, There also was a a recent ish study in nature talking about biochemical abnormalities. um, And I think it was specific to adults that we can be looking at as an earlier predictor of celiac. And this isn't, I mean, this isn't going to blow anyone's mind, I think, who's listening to this podcast, but they were able to quantify that low ferritin, hemoglobin, cobalamin, folic acid Mm -hmm. with high transferrin, um, alanine transaminase, and ALKFOS were a pretty high predictor of celiac. So if we're seeing that in combination perhaps with neurologic conditions or um, attention issues in children, that might be a signal. So let me just say that one more time. Just repeat. It's low ferritin, low uh, hemoglobin, low cobalamin, low folic acid, high ALT, high alpha, alkfos. And transferrin. High transferrin. transferrin. Yep, you got it. So I would say, and so on my list too, I have, you know, unexplained iron deficiency, osteoporosis, osteopenia, we definitely want to screen. But that is going to be more progressed, right? That's going to be more, unfortunately, correct, but better late than never. And Um, celiac can set in any time, right? So the timeline's hard for us as clinicians to kind of keep track of. Correct. Infertility, you know, recurrent spontaneous abortion, that's another link that they've Infertility, Yeah. Um, and you know, how long do you have to have celiac for that to manifest? I don't know, but we should have it on our radar. (laughs) And there can be mood disorders, um, irregular menstrual cycles, um, neuropathy. So there's lots of different systemic types of symptoms where you'd want to think of it. And there is this sort of separate entity of, again, this would be in the non-celiac gluten sensitivity sort of arena where you can form gluteomorphines, which are sort of opiate-like peptides that can affect your mood. And so you get almost like a withdrawal reaction when you stop eating gluten. Did you guys ever watch the show House? Yeah. Yes. Did you guys remember the house? It was yep. a doctor. He, and basically every episode would, would end is with it's it's uh, it's lupus. It has to be lupus. <laughs> I feel like that's what you guys are telling me with celiac. It seems like everything you're mentioning, I'm like, it's a good point. everything. Which is, is why we screen most of our patients. Yeah. And I try to get a yes or a no answer on gluten before going into all sorts of other things, you know, because uh-huh. if we miss this, nothing else is going to work as well, you know. Um, the point. tricky part comes when we have to talk about the initial screening is negative. Do you want to spend you know, do you want to invest in the advanced screening? I think it's important, but that's a, that's a discussion we'll talk about with and testing. And you're talking about, yeah, the endoscopy. Uh, no, actually oh, I'm not. Oh, no, 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 cliffhanger, cliffhanger. <laughs> Total suspense. We're, we're not done. Stay, stay tuned. <laughs> so we'll talk about, why don't we talk about testing so we can get into we're, that. Are we done with epidemiology? And Well, I wanted to talk a yeah, little bit about comorbidities and risks. Sounds good. Um, so top comorbidities, autoimmune, obviously. What I didn't know is that 30% of folks also with celiac disease also have IBS. And that's, that gets tricky because how many were misdiagnosed as IBS? Many, many years, for many, many years, and then finally got their celiac diagnosis. I don't know. Um, thyroid disease, obviously, psoriasis. And then um, and those are about 25 and 8% respectively will also have those conditions. Re- repeat that? What thyroid percent? disease, 25%. Mm-hmm. Psoriasis, 8%. Okay. And then rheumatoid arthritis, type 1 diabetes, and UC, 5% and under. Um, and- but still high enough. Okay. That we should be looking at in those populations. So think about it in all of those conditions. Yeah. Um, risk factors that interested me, um, a lot of these are going to be crossovers with things like IBD and IBS as well. Breastfeeding. Um, so 
in, in, in particular, breastfeeding children while you're introducing gluten into the diet reduces the chances of getting celiac disease by half, 52%. Whoa, that's kind of cool. So, you know, microbiome stuff, which is my favorite thing to talk about. Um, also, GI infections, but not respiratory infections. Mm-hmm. GI, like, like a norovirus or a yeah, gastroenteritis. Yeah, and they have to be infectious gastroenteritis. So if your kid just gets nausea or something like that, that's not, or vomiting for something that isn't infectious, that doesn't increase the risk at all. Okay. So what you're saying is if they get an episode of, ga- of uh, infectious gastroenteritis, they're yep. more likely to form celiac. Within 33% more likely within the next three months after oh. the infection. Okay. That gives, I, as a mother, that gives me a good amount. I'm like, <laughs> if you pass that three months, <laughs> I, I passed it. I'm good, I think. <laughs> you're not out of the woods, but okay. it's less. Um, other things I thought were interesting always were the risk. Always be scared. Always yeah, be scared. Always be scared. <laughs> Um, the risk of getting celiac disease increased twofold among children born in the winter. Huh. Huh. Vitamin D. So potentially. Perhaps. Yeah. And they defined winter as September through February. Not in Oregon. In Oregon, it's, it's September through May. Yeah. Or June, depending <laughs> We're on We're a little year. different here. Um, also systemic antibiotics during that first year of life, particularly, and it's a dose correlation. So the more courses of antibiotics uh, an infant would require, the more likely you are to get celiac disease. Um, and then high gluten consumption ages one through five. So there's a lot of um, controversy on when you should be introducing gluten in folks, uh-huh. in, in, in kids. Yeah. That six month mark is seems to be crucial after six month mark, but then you don't want to overdo gluten. <laughs> So do it, but not I, too much. I mean, do you guys remember before noon? Before on noon Sundays. in the summer. <laughs> uh, do you guys? I don't know if you guys remember. Like forever, we were saying no peanuts, no peanuts. Right, and they totally, they totally botched it and botched it. And yeah. now it says like the earlier you introduce yes. peanuts, the better, the less so, likely to form anaphylaxis. Yeah. I mean, I I always question. Right. right. Like what kind of data but we have to look at yeah. the data. The huge caveat here is what we do to agriculture in this country. Right. That right. Is the it's biggest hybridized so, and you know, genetically how many, modified. So and, explain that. What does that mean? Why is that a huge caveat, just in case somebody doesn't know? Yeah, well, the way we raise wheat plants in this country is very different than other countries um, in terms of pesticides, GMOs, all of that. How many t- how many patients do we have that can go to Europe and eat gluten just right. fine? With very they are also on vacation. Totally. <laughs> but yes. Yeah, that obviously the nervous system I mean, plays And I also just would like to remind you that celiac is not just a Western society. Right. They have American it in Italy. Absolutely. They have it in European Italy. countries. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, more in I other do countries. think our wheat is worse. Right. But I, I wonder, you know, when we're studying populations of American children and wheat introduction, where the bias right. is there. Right. Um, and it's been hybridized to have more gluten content, I believe. And then we spray the ever-living with hell out of it. Yes. Yeah. Like, and I, from my understanding, and I'm not a farmer or an agricultural expert, from my understanding, we just spray everything so everything dies around the wheat that we're growing. Yeah. And then we just harvest that wheat so it's just got, like, pounds of glyphosate on there. Unless it's organic. And then nobody cleans it. And that's my big caveat with people, to be honest. Because I'm, I'm never clear. Like, I ruled out celiac. Yeah. I'm never clear, is this a non-celiac gluten sensitivity or is this a reaction to glyphosate yeah so they have to do organic and let's be honest when you're eating bread at least at my household we eat bread when we're out i don't eat bread at all but everybody else eats bread out and that's never going to be organic right right yeah and there's contamination within organic products it's true that's true and it's significantly less but there is contamination this is like the most depressing episode we've ever done i know (laughs) i i I, it might get worse it's probably brace yourself folks yeah (laughs) all right so the one thing i wanted to add is that first degree relatives of people with celiac you definitely want to screen totally um parents siblings and children have a one in ten risk compared to one in a hundred yep 
So just with your family history, you want to make sure you're screening for those. So genetics, there is a pretty big genetic component here. There's a genetic component for sure, especially if there's a first degree relative. That's the HLA DQ testing. Um, DDW this like year. Very big words. Yeah, Explains me what those genetic things are. testing. Um, the mutations in those genes are associated with autoimmune disease. Um, well, autoimmune disease or celiac in particular? I, I feel like it's a predisposition for a lot of them. I, I'm not sure off the top of my head if it's all of them, um, but they're associated with that. And then the, there's an abstract in DDW this year that showed that 3.6 of c- 3.6% of celiac disease cases had um, actually none of these HLA types. Wait, say that number again. What percent? 3.6. 3.6 had none. So, so that means 97 ish or 96 point whatever. Yep. Point four. Which is I consistent with what we were saying 95 in the past. That, so the majority of folks who have celiac disease have these genetic mutations, right? these changes that we can actually test for in serum and blood, um, but it has to be on our radar. It's not true that it is necessary to have these mutations to have celiac disease. We can't fully rule it out yeah. if they're negative for okay. the HLA haplotypes. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to talk a little bit about um, patient perception before we dive into more on the testing Sounds um, good. and just how this is affecting folks. So what I didn't know is that 50% of celiac disease folks are still symptomatic even with a gluten-free diet. Right. I and I found they often have other, they, ha- they often have other conditions and or food sensitivities totally. most commonly dairy and or egg and the people I've found. Yeah, but, they're gut sensitive. It's yeah. Not, it's not fixed, right? Right. Um, and I think what I what I was reading is that oftentimes the main symptom is the first symptom that brought him in to get diagnosed with celiac disease. So let's say it was diarrhea. Years down the road on a gluten-free diet, they're half still... the folks are still having that diarrhea. So do we think that that's because they're not, because it's really hard to avoid gluten 100% of the time? No, do we think that's I don't why? think so. Because, well, we'll see what Dr. Sand thinks. I, I agree. I think it's variable, right? Some people are able to do that. I'm going to talk a whole lot about food insecurity issues and things like that, because that's a, a big problem, especially since COVID. But we also have learned that mucosal healing is slow. So even even in the absence of gluten, strictly, um, 71% of patients will still have poor villus to crypt ratios after three years of a gluten-free diet. Which is interesting, given how quickly the cells are supposed to turn over. Is there just a constant irritation from other things? Or is it the microbiome? Right. Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Another cliffhanger. (laughs) One thing I was going to add, a GI doctor had told me even in his celiac patients, so he, the crux of it was that if their tissue transglutaminase IgA goes down to the normal range, that's a pretty good indication that they're not having ongoing exposure. So if they're still symptomatic, but their TTG IgA, which we'll talk about, has gone down to normal range, it's unlikely that their persistent symptoms are still from occasional cross-contamination that they've missed. It is. That's like a light bulb for me, too. Totally. To just monitor. Because people may not know. They may not know. They also have a lot of stool tests they're using in studies which may or may not be easier, cheaper, better covered. I don't know. Yeah. But you can test, uh, you know, for gluten in the diet through stool, and it's quite sensitive. I actually did found, when I looked into it, I found it was not sensitive. So there might be newer data yeah. that I that you found that I don't have. Yeah. Because that would be a lot easier than... Well, depending, because often we know how it, like, 
things that are usually in studies are generally very cost prohibitive, at least initially. That's true. We, this was another lab that I won't mention that was touting, you can just do this home stool test, send it to your mm. patients. And many integrative medicine doctors were using it. And then I emailed them, I dove into the research, I found zero publications correlating TTG, IgA in the stool with um, small intestinal biopsy and or serum levels. And if anything, it was the opposite relationship that was found in the publication. Oh. So I stopped using that test, but well, there might be something newer that researchers have that we don't have yeah, access to. Yeah, I don't to. know what specifically they were testing, but it's not hard to find. It's an endpoint marker in a lot of studies okay. more recently. That would be great yeah. if we had access to that. Um, and you, I just I want to say about TTG, IgA in the blood. Yes. That's particularly interesting for me because I think when we talk about testing, there's a couple of different ways depending on right. how deep you want to dive. Mm-hmm. But I feel like everybody tests for TTG, yes. IgA. Should we go into testing? Yeah. Okay, I'm so, so confused. standard testing, which is what I was taught in medical school, and this, it's the same today. Um, tissue transglutaminase IgA and total serum IgA. And the reason you're checking total serum IgA is that if they're just an IgA deficient person and they're not making those antibodies, you're not going to get an accurate TTG IgA, right? right? So that didn't click for me, like in medical school, but, yeah, 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 yeah. um, so, so the IGA is almost the control for all the right, rest of the right. test to make and sure so that that guy is low. If that's the only low finding, yeah, you that can't rely on the TTG well, IGA then. That's very and useful. then yeah. don't you add in the DGP? So yes, we'll talk about, so, okay. okay if you're a regular doctor, yep. you are not supposed to order other tests. You order a TTG IGA and a total IGA. Some of these tests are expensive. You'll be told not to order the other ones. That's right, right, not right. how we practice, but that's the standard. So so typical standard practice, you're ordering the TTG IgA, total IgA. If it's elevated, you send your patient to the GI doctor. They need an endoscopy and a small intestinal biopsy. I also feel that if those are positive or any of the antibodies that we're going to talk about initially are positive, I do think they should go get a small intestinal biopsy because we want right. to know if they have celiac disease. But let's talk about sort of the spectrum of testing that I think most integrative medicine doctors do that I do on 99 to 100% of my patients, unless someone objects. <laughs> you're killing it. You're killing um, it. Can I ask a yes. real quick question? So I know TTG, specifically TTG2, can be elevated in other autoimmune conditions. How do we suss that one out? Is it in the context of GI issues, those malabsorption things? I, st- I would send them for the biopsy so we know. Great. I agree. Great. Because they could in. have the extra intestinal manifestations and not feel Absolutely. the GI. Yep. So the other tests I order on everyone besides TTG, IgA, and total IgA is TTG, IgG, just in case. While we're getting labs, I want to just get the IgG as well. And then I order deaminated gliadin peptide, IgA, and IgG. So those four tests and the total IgA, so five tests on pretty much all new patients with any of these this spectrum okay. of symptoms. But these tests are not created equal. And if you are not eating gluten, right. then they're a waste of money. Correct. So I always say, are you eating gluten in any form? Again, a GI doctor told me at some point, if a patient is eating gluten at all, even if they say they're not eating it as much, it can be helpful to get the test. And I would say clinically, I've had two patients that were trying really hard on their health and they thought they were not eating gluten and their test came back very positive. So I don't have like a full data set if the patient says like, I'm I'm trying not to eat it, but I eat it like on holidays. 
if they haven't eaten it much at all in the past six weeks, I typically don't do the test. But if they tell me I have it here and there, when I go out to eat, I don't worry about it. I ate soy sauce, right. I'll get it. And occasionally worry, it'll come back positive. Yeah, the worry is if it's positive, it's positive. If, if it's, it's negative, negative it's I tell them it's a false. It could be a false. Yeah, I tell them it could be a false negative. you count soy sauce. Soy sauce has weed in it. They started putting weed in it at some point. It yep. didn't originally have weed in it, yep. but it does now. Tamari Unless is weed-free. Gluten-free soy sauce or tamari. Because I know personally with myself, I've been non-celiac gluten sensitive for, you know, 25 plus years, yeah. but I don't have anything happen to me. Well, or you don't know. Right. I don't have any <laughs> symptoms. That's fair. That's fair. And you're not degrading your small intestine when you eat wheat. I'm trying not to. Well, you don't have celiac. <laughs> I don't have celiac. So right, you're right, not. Right, celiac. Yeah. But if you have non-celiac gluten sensitivity, you might be mounting an autoimmune response and then you would get an advanced test to see if the amount you're eating is affecting you at all. I really want to hear about these. Okay, wait, tests. not yet, not yet. Okay. I have a clarifying question. I'm hanging on a yeah, you. I, I mean, I feel like I'm on the edge of the cliff with you. <laughs> okay. I am. Um, okay, my clarifying question is, so what I'm hearing based on these five tests that you're talking yes. about is if IgA is low, then all of them are null and void. Not all of them. The IgA levels are then the IG, Okay, but if the Ig either of the IgGs are elevated, that would also say... Go right to the gastro first. Okay, one. not in traditional medicine. They're not checking those. Okay, so but if we check in our if practice. If we check them and I, they're positive, I like to send them to GI because there are some small percentage of cases where that, that I mean, the markers we used to use were, we didn't have tissue transglutaminase until the last, I don't know, decade, 15 years, maybe 20 years at the most. So they used to use more of the gliadin antibody tests to send to GI and do the biopsy. And I still feel like I've had occasional cases and there's a few percentage of people w- which will have one of the other antibodies elevated and not necessarily the TTG IgA. Uh, so, so I still send them. So basically what I've seen a lot, and this is where I get confused. This is why I'm really, really happy we're doing this. Yeah. Because what I've seen is that that's my standard panel, those five tests. Right. And only the IgA will be elevated. That is not a positive marker for celiac. N- that, no. It's only no, the IgA. That's just that, an immune marker. The no. way we're looking at the total IgA is just, as just a, a, yes. to, to, within the context to build a picture for all of the other tests. Right. But if any of the four other tests are positive, I send it's them a GI. go get scoped. We I think need, it, need it warrants at least a discussion with GI on whether they need a small intestinal biopsy. Definitely if the TTG IgA is elevated, but any of the any of those four, I think is worth a conversation to get GI's opinion on if they need a small intestinal and biopsy. And importantly, in the absence of that IgA, if the IgA is low, we have Correct. to get the... That's the only way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that. I feel like that right there is a huge... Like, for me, the number... So far, it's been the number of people has been, like, eye-opening. <laughs> the, the What we're looking on early on is high-opening. And that... It, like, I've been running this test. Yeah. Because Lisa Shaver, Dr. Lisa Shaver, a local right. naturopath who specializes in she celiac... She loves this. From 2013, <laughs> I've been listening to her lecture. Yeah. I've been running this test and confused for almost a decade. Well, right. It took me years for for me to click, like, why are we ordering this IgA with yeah, this right. test? So the way I would interpret just a, as you probably already know that I would just interpret as a separate phenomenon. They have an elevated IgA. Their mucosal immune system is hyperreactive for or some reason. Or we send reason. them over to hematology or something for them to get a... Mer- I, I don't know that they need that. I mean, usually it's slightly elevated. Mm-hmm. You can recheck it, work on gut stuff. I mean, something's going on on their mucous membranes that's causing a hyperreactive yeah. response as opposed to a low IgA. There's something, an immunodeficiency type of an issue, you know? Got Which it. is a lot of microbiome stuff too. Right. Putting in a plug here. And if they do have a low IgA, then I'll Ooh. order the... I mean, the microbiome doesn't matter. Matter, Dr. Say. I, I don't even know I why even, you keep bringing it I up. Just, you know, I can't help myself. We'll get into that. And but I mean, there's tests to order immunoglobulins to check if they have sort so, of 
more significant immunodeficiency. Also on this, like eating gluten prior to testing topics. Yes, yes, Basically, good point. Good point. If there's any exposure to gluten, it's not a bad idea to test. If it's if it's perhaps not enough, if it's a negative test, maybe then you need to go back and say like eat a piece Do of a bread a day. Do a gluten challenge. The equivalent of a piece of bread a day for six weeks, ideally. Great. Okay, so Ooh, that's a lot. let me tell you what Dr. Shaver has said. Yes. Dr. Shaver has said yes, absolutely. You want this to be a provoked test with them eating gluten, yep. but if they're for full celiac, there's a possibility that eating gluten will set them into multi uh, multi system organ failure. Of Wait, if they are celiac they and they've been avoiding it. And they've yeah. been avoiding it. And you need to see, are they, because there is a lot of long-term health implications yeah. of being celiac and not treating. Right. right. And there is that possibility that they will go into multi-organ yeah. system failure. Those words together are very bad. Yes, yeah. And very... it's it's called a celiac crisis and it is an a- actual thing. So again, informed consent. If you're going to go tell your potential yeah. patient yeah. to go eat a bunch of gluten. I've also heard from Dr. Shaver that you're supposed to have them not eat gluten and actually fast prior to the blood draw. That Have I've never heard, heard. I've never heard that either, but that doesn't mean anything. Shoot. Dr. Shaver, weigh in. Help us. <laughs> if you're out there. <laughs> if you're out so, there. So, I mean, when you have the discussion, it's typically, the, the patients that typically will do the gluten challenge on are the patients who tell me they don't feel very sick from it. They avoid it some of the time. They eat it sometimes. Typically, I don't think that's the patient that's going to go into multi-organ failure. Of course, I can't predict. Right. So we do do the informed consent, but the patients who tell me they feel horrible when they eat it, we yes, almost never can't. do. Yes, you just yes, basically yes. say, like, let's just have you avoid it. Yes. And or if I am going to do a gluten challenge, I'm going to see if I can get a GI to set up an endoscopy. And At the same the time. Yeah. Standard if I'm going to put them through that torture. Right. So just you do don't want to if they if they feel that sick when they eat it it's it's you need to be careful about asking them I to definitely, do a challenge. I definitely one of my girlfriends was going through this she wasn't sure if she was non gluten celiac or she was just frank celiac and so she was doing this eating bread challenge. Mm. I swear to God. I've never seen anybody be so tortured Aww. by eating carbs. Like she was like putting it in her mouth and like chewing it, but like Aww. she was like borderline wanting to throw <laughs> up. Like, sweetie. like she made her feel so bad. <laughs> oh, no. It turned out that she was non-celiac gluten sensitive and now yeah. she knows that for sure. Yeah. But just the emotional of avoiding gluten for that many years yeah. and then introducing it back in. It was, yeah. it, I, I felt bad for her. I had a great time. I remember going out <laughs> to eat with my friend, Lydia, and getting this peach cobbler. I was doing my job, yeah. and I enjoyed every bite of it. And that yeah. was the last time I had gluten that I know of. Oh, no. I will also just give a plug at somebody who has been gluten-free for going on Right, it's years. not that hard. It's not at that this, hard. At this point, it's not that hard And I do all. feel like, like it's yesterday. It's a little annoying with travel and such. I, yesterday, I took a New York Times, you know, plum tort recipe, yes. and I converted it with a gluten-free this, one-to-one. yeah. It it was not delicious. Hard. The majority of people at my house last night were not gluten free, and all of them loved it. That sounds great. As I a I representative of Big Gluten, <laughs> I am <laughs> not sure I could do what you guys do, but I admire you. I, I will also say that the trick to doing what we do is you can't go gluten free. Yeah. I mean, you can't go gluten and then assume that gluten free is gonna. It's not gonna to, taste the same. It's not gonna taste some. You need but to you like forget what gluten is, right? And then like a very strict <laughs> keto or whole thirty diet for like yeah. somewhere between one month and four yeah. years, and then non gluten. And yeah, that's a amazing. lot of work. And, of the, course, the positive feedback of feeling better. Right. There's you know? that. There's and the then there's piece. the challenge with the people who are positive. You take it out. They don't feel better because they have 20 other things going on. And then it becomes challenging. That right. is a thing. Yes. That really happens. It is. Absolutely. That is I will say the hardest time it was to avoid gluten in Japan in an area where they don't speak English, asking them to not put soy sauce in things. A lot of confusion. So you want to bring someone who's Japanese speaking when you go. But anyway. I just wonder, going back to our Italy-Europe <laughs> conversation, I wonder if their wheat, I, like, I don't know what if Japanese yeah. standards are. It's for probably growing. better. 
It's probably. I mean, I'm assuming really it's better. It, we are we are top of the list. <laughs> we in are terms really of messing special. of messing up our food, <laughs> we are really amongst other things. Okay, are we ready are, to dive into yes, what Dr. Stan been has been waiting? What about the advanced testing? That's, that's what, what that's we want. We want advanced okay, testing. Okay, that's what we want. Okay, so here I know we generally aren't saying names, but I am going to give you the name of the test I've used for many years now. Um, so the Cyrex Array Number Three Advanced Gluten Sensitivity Panel. This is what I use if I have a polysymptomatic patient or someone with a lot of gut issues. Their initial labs were negative either because they don't eat gluten, we didn't do a challenge, they eat it sporadically, or just because I'm really concerned they might have a gluten sensitivity and it didn't show up on those tests. As well as I had a patient or two who had autoimmune thyroid disease they had no symptoms with gluten. They just wanted to know because of the correlation. So those are kind of the situations when I do often recommend the Cyrex Array number three panel in our population of patients, again, to get a yes or a no answer. It looks at more than a dozen antibodies to gluten, wheat, gliadin in various forms. I can't list them all for you, but you can Google it to see. And I do not infrequently get a positive on there when it has been negative on that initial panel because we're just checking for a lot more ways that for someone's body non-celiac gluten it. sensitivity. Okay, so celiac, we're sticking to our five yes. blood tests, no yes. specialty labs. When we leave the world of celiac, it gets a little bit more wild, wild west. Yeah. And that's when the Cyrex array three. So I just want to say, I hear the word Cyrex and immediately I assume it costs four to $600. So they lower their price when there was another test on the market. So it's now 279 which I don't feel is horrible. And this is as of 2022. 2022. So we don't know when when it's going to be in another year. Um, But I've looked at some of the other options and I just don't have the same trust in other panels as I do in theirs, probably because I've used it longer than others. There are less expensive ones on the market um, that it would be great to have other other doctors' experiences, but we don't have a way to... I mean, what are we going to test it against? Because <laughs> right, I've had right, I had right. a colleague who sent it into this lab and another lab that does advanced gluten testing, and they got completely different results. Yeah. So whose is right? I mean, I'm going with the the one I've heard more about that's been around longer that I feel like has had some validation studies. They do have validation. Yeah, studies. I, mean, I believe like so. We'd have to. I do believe they, that he, their director. I believe is very. He's a PhD researcher. Yes, I do believe that they actually validate. The yes. question with the validation is, what's their control set? Right. What is it against? Right. Yeah. And is it against like people who work for them? Is it right. against people who are like in our community who yes. maybe are a little bit hyper aware of their health? And like true. Population demographics. There's a lot of questions. People? Yeah. There's a lot of questions. Great questions. Are but... they? Do we think? Is that pretty much what we're talking about with testing? Any other testing that we've got? That's everything that I use with testing for celiac or non-celiac gluten sensitivity. If it shows up on an IgG test, my caveat is that I don't consider that a valid way to assess I for agree. gluten sensitivity. But if it shows up on there too, then I'm like this and... Okay, actually, know. Dr. Kabadia. Yes. I mean, one more thing. I had I ran a stool test and yes. one of the stool tests that I ran came up with an anti-gliadin yes, yes. IgA stool test. I use and that. You- if they've had it, I will... Use, I Instead of asking the patient to get yet another test... If they're sick, I will use that, even though I just said earlier that I don't think it's been <laughs> validated. <laughs> validated. So you basically, and that kind of puts you down towards, uh, I think this is uh, non-celiac, non-celiac gluten. But I think the difference, that isn't whether they ate gluten, that is whether they mounted an immune response to gluten. Not necessarily celiac disease, but their body didn't like that gluten they took in and made IgA against it, correct? I, I mean, that's what it sounds like to me, but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I believe this patient had already also had a small intestinal biopsy that ruled out celiac disease. Got it. And they were polysymptomatic, and we think gluten causes 
we know gluten causes intestinal permeability for everyone, regardless or not if we they do have know that, celiac or non-celiac. So in this, in those cases, like what you're talking about, I thought it was appropriate to remove it. I had a little bit of evidence that may or not be, may not be accurate from that stool test. Can you run me through what a classic non-celiac gluten sensitivity panel would come positive for on that? Can you like ask what, that another yep, way? Yep, yep, yep. What markers would be high in the case of not celiac but gluten sensitivity on the Cyrex panel? What I'm looking for. There, there's about 10 to 15, at least, I believe, different okay. antibodies. I can never remember the exact number. So but any there's of a, them being positive, you're kind of shunting people Well, to. there's a positive, equivocal, and a negative. So I kind of, like, I, I remember my autoimmune thyroid patient, she had, like, one equivocal, and she didn't feel any different eating gluten. Got it. I could not make a good case to have her avoid gluten. So I kind of use the pattern. There is a wheat specific. So if it's just wheat specific and none of the gliadin or gluten show up, then I tell them there might be just a wheat issue, you know, and we don't have to necessarily include all of the other, which I like the acronym from Dr. O'Brien, Browse, Barley, Rye, Oats, Wheat, Spelt. You need to get... Oh, wait, 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 wait. Barley? Barley, rye, oats, wheat, spelt. You can get browse, gluten-free browse. certified cool. oats. Cool, like your eyebrows. Dr. <laughs> Sand just goes, eyebrows. Like your eye- I'm yeah, pointing browse. to my eyebrow in case anyone's confused. So if the, if your patients are going to eat oats, again, I have them get the Bob's Red Mill organic gluten-free oats that right, are now right, right. $13. I will also <laughs> like to know that those patients are obviously quite affluent because it's $17,000 I just told that. Yeah. It just has <laughs> gone up with inflation. Yeah. Yeah. So so the, the reason oats is in there is not because it intrinsically has gluten. It's because of cross-contamination yeah. in the way right. they, they process and right, hold right, it right. so and i also just want to make a shout out to bob's because that company oh yeah is they're awesome. great I, I love their stuff they also were yeah. like on the forefront of helping people with food allergies yes they're wonderful and they've like stuck to it it's just inflation yeah yeah inflation. um anything else that we have to do about testing because i do think this is a good stopping point it it clarified a lot for me me too um and who were what populations we're testing and things we need to look out for okay can i do my recap yes well oh, can oh, i add one thing i'm ready and this may be for later a lot of these patients are nutrient deficient. Right. So just a reminder to check for nutrient deficiencies. Yep. The common ones we often test for that we've talked about before, but I'll often check zinc, copper, B12, ferritin, uh, vitamin D. The standard ones are Liver often enzymes. deficient in these people. Yeah, because folks like that Nature paper said, they might show those deficiencies before serum testing positive for celiac. Good point. Um, so I, I think it's probably not a bad idea. If you're going to be doing serum testing for celiac, just add in those nutrients. Which I we usually do on initial panel with most yep. patients. Yep, we, we do. do. Yeah. Uh, shame to anybody who doesn't. Shame, shame, shame. Test your patients. Um, okay, so here is my recap. My recap is 1% of the population suffers from celiac disease. That 1%, 97% of that 1% do not know that they suffer from celiac disease. These people are very often already having another autoimmune disease, like UC, like RA, like IBD, like Hashimoto's, even though I have, there's a study on that that I question that. Um, and then what we're looking for early detection would be uh, low ferritin, low cobalamin, low folate, uh, high ALT, high ALKFOS. There was one more low. Ferritin? Uh, hemoglobin. Oh, low hemoglobin. hemoglobin. Low, low hemoglobin, ferritin, um, cobalamin, and folate, high ALT, high ALKFOS, and high transferrin as an early detection. Also, if we want to look at non-celiac, there's five blood tests. If any of them are positive besides the total IgA, then it is worth it to get them scoped. If the IgA is low, then it's the whole test is a little bit null and void. The if, IgAs, at least. If the total IgA, yeah, the IgAs are null and void. And we have void. to add in the DGP. Yeah. 
uh, which a lot of us are running stock. I just run those. Yeah. We just run those okay, anyway. Right, right. Yeah. Um, uh, scoping is the only is the only gold standard for these people. And then the other thing is, if they're not, if we rule out celiac, it does not mean that we're ruling out non non celiac gluten sensitive. If you're wondering, you can do a Cyrex Array three gluten or have them take out gluten. But those are the things that we need to be looking at with testing and who we're testing. Basically, test your patients. Yeah, you're missing it. If you're not diagnosing it, you're missing it. If you have more than 100 patients, you're missing it. If you have no one in your... Good point. (laughs) Whoa, that that really... I'm going to say that shivers me. And if they have gut stuff already... Or migraines or neuropathy or fatigue or or iron deficiency. How many of our patients have iron deficiency? It's probably 50%. At least. So just check them. Just check them. Have it on your radar. Okay. That's awesome. I feel like I actually learned a ton. Amazing. I can't wait for part two. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Oh, bye. Thanks for joining us today. Stay tuned. We release episodes every two weeks. If you like this episode, please subscribe and don't forget to rate and review us to help spread the turd nerd word. Eee! <gasps>